The story of the Exodus is one of the most well-known of all Bible stories, partly because of the movie The Ten Commandments, and partly because it is the historical history of the beginning of the Jewish nation. But that doesn't mean it's not without controversy. Not only do some people question whether it really happened, but if it did, when did it happen, and how does it apply to us today? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805. Today we're going to look at the story of the Exodus and at the book in the Bible. We're also going to look at the archaeology and the history behind the true story of God's deliverance of His people. In our episode entitled Exodus, an introduction and the history behind it. First of all, I want to start out with a quote by Alfred Edersheim, one of the great Old Testament scholars, where he says, and I quote, The period covered by Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers is, in many respects, the most important in Old Testament history, not only so far as it regards Israel, but the church at all times. And I totally agree with this statement. This is such an important foundational part of our understanding of and knowledge of the Bible because it sets forth a pattern of, first of all, how God works in history. The things that he does in the story of the Exodus, he repeats that same pattern of dealing with people throughout the Bible, how he saves them, not by any of their own strength, but by his own grace, how he forms them into a people, how he teaches them to worship and live for him. Now today, in this lesson, we're going to go over just an overview of what happened in the book of Exodus, and we're also going to spend a lengthy amount of time on what I think is a really fascinating topic, and that's how archaeology lines up with the the story in Exodus. In the next lesson, go into all of the details on how the tabernacle was built and the sacrifices and those things. Now let's look at the book of Exodus. Exodus opens around 430 years after Joseph's death. Now this is an interesting gap there because though in some ways these are silent years, God of course is very much at work during this time growing a people that will become the nation of Israel. And it's important just I will sort of intersperse applications and things for you to think about as I go through the different parts of the history. But one of the things here that's important to remember is that even though these are silent years in regards to what the Bible tells us is going on, God is very much at work. Another gap of about 400 years occurs between the ending of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. And again, God is very much at work, even though we don't have writings for from these times. Of course, the application to all of us for this is that even though there are times when our life, in our lives, when we don't feel that we can see God at work, when we're not really as aware of Him as other times, He is still very active doing things that are working to fulfill His plans for us. But back to Exodus now. Now, I have chosen the, out of the many options, the date 446 for the Exodus. Now, one of the things that I'm not going to bore you with is the literally months and actually years of study how I've looked at various things for how the Exodus is dated. 
just very quickly, there are two major schools of thought in this area. There is the earlier date for the Exodus, and that's the one that I have chosen. That is the around 1446 date. And then there's a later date, and that one's around the 1200s. Now, Again, like I said, I'm not going to go into every detail. This is an area that there's a huge amount of controversy and all sorts of fussing and fighting and, and everything else going on on that. However, the 1446 date, and I will show you why in more detail a little bit later in this lesson, is the one that is accepted by the most conservative biblical scholars. When you accept that date, many of the events in the Old Testament just fall into place perfectly. The later date that puts it into the school of thought of, oh, it was just a nice story and this really didn't happen. So we are going to look at 1446 for the date of the Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus starts with the story of Moses and his parents hid him because Pharaoh had decreed that all male babies were supposed to be destroyed, cast into the Nile River. Now, they obeyed the letter of the Pharaoh's command in that they put him in this little basket in the river and had his sister watching him. And as the story goes in the Bible, Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby, takes pity on the baby, and raises Moses as her own. Now, at first, though, she doesn't want to apparently be bothered by this screaming infant. So she says, who is there someone that can nurse the baby for me? And Miriam's standing there and says, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I know somebody, <laughs> and actually takes Moses back home and he is nursed by his mother during the early years of his life. So Moses then returns to Pharaoh's household. He is raised as the daughter of Pharaoh. And I'll tell you when I get to the archaeological part, some really interesting things on this, but you have to hold on a little while to, to get to that. And then when he became a man, he knows somehow, and we don't, we don't have the details here, but he feels that God wants him to deliver his people. He is out with the Hebrew slaves who are under severe bondage. He... Um, corrects one of them one day and he sees a man fighting with another and he kills him and then he comes back the next day and tries to tell some others what to do and they said well you know are you going to kill us like you did the other guy Moses realizes that what he has done has become known and he is a murderer and he flees to the land of Midian. He's there for 40 years. And I would imagine that Moses thought his life was completely over. He had had the best education, the best training. He was in a very powerful position in Egypt, and he basically threw it all away in a fit of anger. And he's had 40 years to think about it. And he was probably, I like to think, getting very comfortable and sort of thinking, well, you know, life is what it is. I'm going to hang around the tent, play with the grandkids, um, whatever. But then one day, a bush was burning. And Moses got the call from God to go and deliver his people. D.L. Moody has a great comment on this situation where he says Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, then the next 40 years realizing he was nobody, and the last 40 years of his life realizing what God could do with a nobody. And that is just a fantastic thing for us to remember. And one of the things I like so much also is 
that God called Moses when he was 80 years old. He'd had a plan for him all of his life, but he called him when he was 80. And I want to say to all of you who might be listening, no matter what age you are, God has work for you to do. You might think that either you're too young or you're too old or life has passed you by and ministry has passed you by or whatever it is, but it hasn't. You never know when one day a bush will be burning in your life and God will say, I want you to get to work. But think about that. Be ready, be prepared, and get to work. Now, we know that Moses goes back to Egypt. He confronts Pharaoh. And instead of Pharaoh just saying, oh, that's wonderful. Go ahead, everybody, everybody go do your thing. He says, no, I am not letting the people go. And we know that he then makes life much harder for the Israelite slaves. They're told to continue to build, but they might, must find their own straw for the bricks. The plagues actually go on for, and scholars, they don't have an exact time, but anywhere from four to six to maybe even up to 10 months. We tend to, again, a lot of us think back to the story of the movie that things just happen one right after the other, but there were time periods between them, and if you read the scriptures carefully, you can see that it took quite a while. Now, all of these were really a demonstration of God's power against the gods and the pride of Egypt. Now, some scholars have tried to say, oh, it was this god of the flies and the frogs and whatever. No, 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 that's that's incorrect. Egyptians didn't worship flies and frogs. They, had, uh, they worshiped the sun god. They worshiped Horus, the hawk-headed god. When they say that it was against the gods of Egypt, they mean all of them as a group. God Almighty, Jehovah, was showing that he is the one that is in charge. And not only did he humble their pride, but this was a demonstration to the nation surrounding them that God was in control. We know finally, after the death of the firstborn, the Israelites were allowed to leave Egypt. And they go into the desert, into Sinai, where God forms them into his people. Now we're going to stop there on the history itself because I really want to get into the archaeological and historical background of it. We will pick up in the next lesson on what happens as they leave Egypt when they get to Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the building of the tabernacle, and the various laws. But right now I'm going to first give you some application from what we've learned and then we will get into the archaeological parts. First of all, some applications and considerations. Number one, we need to always remember that God does not forget his people or his promises. 430 years is a long time, but God did not forget. And if people were paying attention and remembered that God specifically told Abraham how long they would be in Egypt, they would have known and they could have trusted for how long he wanted them to be trusting him for their, their ultimate deliverance. The next lesson is a reminder that sometimes things get harder before we're delivered from them. And just like it, it happened with the Israelites, they weren't given any straw. They had to find their straw. Things got a lot tougher once they took a stand for what they expected God to do. That often will happen for us. And sometimes that difficulty might go on for a long time. Speaking of timing, 
this is a great reminder also that God's timing is not like ours. I can probably say for sure that for all of us, we want God to work faster than he does. We want our answers to prayer now. We want things worked out now. We don't want to wait. I was just reading a very interesting editorial in the New York Times where the author talked about how technology has made this whole idea even worse for us, particularly in the area of decision-making. We don't often take time to deliberately think about something, to weigh pros and cons, to stop and pause and take some time before we come to a decision. We expect quick decisions and fast decisions and make up your mind now. And this constant immediate news cycle is always pushing us. And he says, this, this is really not a good idea. We need to slow down. We need to think things through. And God is not going to be rushed, even though we want him to move along with his schedule. He's, he's not going to do that. He can be trusted to work things out in his time. And one of the things that I, I, probably one of the themes of my teaching is that I want all of you who know Jesus to remember, and we don't realize this enough, you are eternal people. You will live forever. You will not experience death. You'll go through death, but you're an eternal person right now. And God has that plan in mind for you. He is shaping you and doing the circumstances in your life that will help you be the person he wants you to be. So you want to trust in that also. And knowing that even if you don't get the answers to all of your prayers in this life, this life is not all there is. Now keep in mind too, the way God works, and we see this in this passage, is he works works on two levels. This is very important. Listen carefully. God always works in overall history to accomplish his plans. He had a plan for the nation of Israel, but that does not mean that God forgets or does not have a plan for individuals within that history. Each individual, each one of you, each one of us, we are all accountable for how we live our lives within God's overall plan. Not everybody can be a Moses. Not everyone is going to do huge, heroic things that will go down in history. History probably won't notice most of us, but the Lord does. And what the Lord looks at is, are we kind to our neighbors? Are we gentle to the people around us? Do we work for justice? Do we live the way the Lord wants us to? Do we tell our friends, our neighbors, our families about Him? A great example of personal faithfulness in the midst of a historical situation are the parents of Moses. They obviously stayed true to the Lord, worshipped Him, and they passed it on to their children. Now, during those days, a child wasn't weaned often until he was maybe five years old. That was quite a bit of time, actually, for his family to tell him about God. And some of you may think, oh, he was probably too young to remember. And I don't think so. And the reason is, when I was a little girl, we lived with my grandmother for a year when my father, my father was in the army and he was stationed in Japan. And it was a year before we could go over to join him. And so my mother and my little sister and myself, we lived with my grandma. My grandma was an extraordinarily godly woman, and I can still remember some of the things that she taught me then. I was only three years old. 
But that was an incredibly important time in my life. It really shaped a lot of who I am today from the time that I spent with her. I think it's reasonable to conclude that Moses probably had similar memories. Obviously, he got them from someplace because of how he reacted when he was older. So it's it's just important that no matter what situation that we might be in, that we would really consider that we need to always follow God. Moses' parents are a great example of living out one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis' book, The World's Last Night, and he talks about how people might be working frantically on this, that, or the other project, and that that might be a good idea to be doing something like that. But he says when the when the world comes to an end, he says, for after that comes judgment. But then he goes on to say, happy are those, when this occurs, who it finds laboring in their vocations, whether they were merely going out to feed the pigs or laying good plans to deliver humanity a hundred years hence from some great evil. But now the curtain has fallen. Those pigs will never in fact be fed. The great campaign against white slavery or government tyranny will never in fact proceed to victory, no matter you were at your post when the inspection came. Moses' parents were at their post. They were doing what God wanted them to do, which was as much as they were able, they were raising a godly son. And so no matter where or what circumstance we find ourselves in, we want to be found of the Lord in our post, doing what He wants us to do. Now, some of you might think, but I don't know what my post is. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't have any great calling. That doesn't matter. You all know what you're supposed to do. And the minimum, at least, we can always look at Micah 6, 8, where it says, And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? We can all do that. That is what the Lord wants us to do, whatever situation we're in, whether it's really big or really little. Now, we've talked about an overview of what happened in the book of Exodus. And you might say, well, that's a great story. And a lot of people would say it's it's also a challenging one, but did it really happen? Or what actually many people think is that this is just some made-up story to explain how the Jewish people came to be. I would propose that what the Bible teaches and what I believe is that it is true history. And we can find some absolutely fascinating archaeological and historical support for it. What I'm going to talk about now, I'm going to warn you up front, it is not agreed upon by everyone who studies ancient history. And there are a number of reasons for it. The first one is that there are tremendous problems with Egyptian dating. The Egyptians were very good about showing us pictures of things. We have hieroglyphics. We have thousands and thousands of pictorial records. We have their statues. We have their images. We have their mummies. We actually have the mummies of some of the people that Moses, for example, the pharaoh that I believe that he stood in front of, we have his mummy. We have all of these resources. And so they were really good about that. But they did not have a consistent dating system. And so it can be a little bit difficult to tell exactly what happened when. However, the order of the pharaohs is very well documented. 
One thing also overall that they did is they only wrote history and illustrated in their drawings important people. Some critiques that people have of the story of the Exodus is they say, well, they, they, we don't see that anywhere in Egyptian writings. Well, of course you wouldn't. First of all, they would not talk about a defeat, and they wouldn't really care about what happened to the slaves. Someone in my Sunday school class today actually brought up a really important, really a, a very useful analogy, I think, where she said, oh, she says, it's just kind of like in Jane Austen's books. You know what the main characters are doing, but all of the servants don't have names, and you don't even really realize what they're doing in the background. And I said, that is, that's a great analogy. And that's really sort of the same kind of thing that happened. One other thing, though, why it was so important to record the names of the pharaohs is they believe that that is how they were immortal. Recently, we saw the King Tut exhibit uh, here near us in Los Angeles, and they repeatedly talked about how having King Tut's name repeated again and again, that's what would make him immortal. And so that's why they would carve their name, their images, have those so so that would be repeated again and again. And then if they got angry with someone, they would scratch it out. They would try to destroy all writings about them. Which, interesting little historical tidbit here. And that is, when Moses writes about the Pharaoh, he doesn't list his name. He knew that that would make him really angry. And I, I think just, and this is just my pure supposition, but I think it's it's kind of interesting that later on in the, in the Old Testament, we know the names of pharaohs that did this or that or something else. But Moses knew what an insult it would be to tell the story of a pharaoh and not mention his name. And he didn't. But let's now get into a discussion of the timeline of the Exodus and how it is supported by true archaeology. Now, let me tell you how I came up with this. First of all, I in this I do have a master's degree in church history, and um, also I emphasized ancient history in my studies. Now, what I'm going to share with you, I'm not documenting and citing it as I would have to for a graduate school paper, but I did do a tremendous amount of research on it. First of all, I narrowed down, and I mentioned this already, between the earlier date for the Exodus and the later date. And after extensive research, I do believe with beyond a shadow of a doubt that the earlier date is the correct one. That means that the Exodus took place in approximately 1446 BC. Now, once one comes up with that as a correct thing, then it's actually very easy to work backwards to see when Joseph was in Egypt. And then once you have these main characters in place, then what you need to do to come up with the archaeology of what pharaohs were in power at that time, and this gets really interesting, hold on for just a little bit and I'll tell you about that, is then you have to match that up with the list of pharaohs. Now there is some disagreement on that, but I went through a number of the lists, and these are all from secular sources, and came up with the list that seems to be the best verified one. Now what's really interesting with that is once I then started lining up those pharaohs with the exact dates that um, that they lived in conjunction with when Joseph lived, and then when the Exodus took place, came up with some really fascinating things. Now, this is not original with me. You can find this in cited in numerous things, but um, 
I'm just kind of going to go through it for you for your edification right now. So let's start out with Joseph. He's a starting point. And ChristianAnswers.net has a great little um, little introductory statement here where they say, supporters of a 12th dynasty date for the Joseph story begin their arguments, and I, I really like this, and I agree totally, with a strict literal acceptance of the biblical chronology of the Exodus and sojourn. 1 Kings 6.1 is seen as dating the Exodus to approximately 1446 BC and Exodus 12.20 is seen as placing the entrance of Jacob and his family into Egypt where Joseph holds high office under the reign of Sestostris three around 1876 BC. So we have the name of the first pharaoh. And this is really interesting because then what I did is after I came up with the names of the pharaohs, then I looked at what was going on with each of them. And it's fascinating how this fits into the biblical story. Sesostrit 3, and I've got it on the notes so you can see the spelling. I'm sure I'm probably butchering their pronunciation, he would have been the pharaoh of Joseph's story. And it's fascinating because you can look him up online and you can see pictures of him. Uh, Lots and lots of images. They made so many of themselves. This was a time of great power and prosperity for Egypt. And one of the things that was really interesting is this was a time of uh, of unusually good relations with surrounding nations. Egypt tended to fight a lot. They were either conquering or they were just doing all kinds of things. And and they weren't particularly the friendliest nation. But during this time, they had very good, peaceful relations with the nations surrounding them, which, of course, fits in with the biblical story on why Joseph's family, why Jacob's family felt comfortable going down to Egypt to buy grain. So they go down, they buy grain, they um, move the whole family down to Egypt. Well, then the next major thing in Egyptian history is not terribly long after that, a group called the Hiskos, which was a Semitic group of people that's in the same national um, ethnic tradition, or, or not tradition, the ethnic strain of the Israelites. But the Hiskos, even though they're not sure exactly exactly where they came from. They surmise that they came from probably somewhere a little bit north of Israel, north of Palestine. But they come down into Egypt and they take over Egypt. Now, there's various controversy. The history on a lot of this isn't the most clear, but they feel that it was a fairly peaceful takeover. However, the reason that they took over rather easily is they had superior weapons. They were the first ones in that area to use what's called a compound bow. The Egyptians prior to that just had long bows, which the compound bow could pierce armor. It was much more powerful. They also were the ones that introduced the horse and chariots. And one of the things that I showed in my class and our Bible 8 class 5, I'm able to show people slides of stuff and everything. So I just have to describe it to you. But I showed them a mummy, well not a mummy, but the bones, the burial of a horse that was right between one of the king's thrones. The horse 
horses and their chariots were, were very important to them. So they were the ones that introduced the bow and the chariots to Egypt, which the Egyptian people immediately took to and, and armed their armies with them. Now what's interesting though in the biblical account lining this up is they were not Egyptian rulers, they were a new group of people and many Bible scholars say this is probably the group where it talks about that a pharaoh arose that knew not Joseph. He wouldn't have known him. He didn't care. He wasn't Egyptian. He didn't, he wasn't beholden to him for anything. A foreign conqueror. And that this is probably when the oppression of the Israelites started to take place. Also, their capital, Avis, was not, or Arvis, was up in, um, right near, or actually in part of Goshen. They didn't rule from either Thebes or Memphis like the ethnic Egyptians did. So they think this is probably where the oppression started. Now they only ruled a little over a hundred years, but then they were thrown out. And after that, the oppression of the Israelites became even stronger. And some scholars say, well, that's probably because the Israelites were the same group group ethnically as the Hiskos, and they were perhaps afraid that they would also rebel and try to take over, which they didn't do, but um, that would explain why they were further oppressed. Now, this next part gets a little bit complex, so listen carefully, but it's just fascinating. The next major pharaoh to come along was a gentleman named Thutmose the first. Now he was great. He conquered a lot of things militarily. He takes back, you know, Egypt. He's ruling Karnak, the um, the temples at Karnak, which are these huge things that you've seen the the row of the sphinxes and um, a lot of these a lot of sculptures and things like that that we associate with ancient Egypt. He undertook this huge building program, which would explain how the um, Israelites, of course, were forced to do all of this building. Now, listen carefully, because this gets into the family things of the Egyptians. But um, he had a number of children by his royal wife. You had a royal wife, and that was the one that was supposed to produce the heir to the throne. And then you could have lesser wives and concubines, but their offspring weren't as high in the royal hierarchy. Well, he has children by his royal wife, all of them, except for a daughter, Hatshepsut died. So she was the only surviving, truly royal from both sides, child heir to the throne. Well, they did have sort of a preference for men. So Thutmose I has another child by a secondary wife. That was Thutmose II. Now, the Egyptians married their brothers and sisters all the time. So even though he's younger, he he married, he ends up marrying Hatshepsut. Now, they, it didn't seem to be a terribly happy marriage. Um, they did not have any children that survived. So Hatshepsut, she is pretty much without a child. Now, this Thutmose, he then goes on later on to have a child with a secondary wife of his, who he names Thutmose III. Now, let me review this relatively unhappy family. We have Hatshepsut who is the eldest, and then her husband, Thutmose II, who is a actually pretty weak man, not a very strong ruler, not any of that, and then 
Thutmose II has a child, Thutmose III, who's relatively young. Now, Hatshepsut, somewhere along the line, gets fed up with all this, and she proclaims herself Pharaoh. She ascends to the throne. She is the one that is ruling Egypt. Now, what we don't know exactly the chronology of what happened, but somewhere prior to the time that she proclaims herself Pharaoh, she is the princess who adopts Moses. So basically Moses is raised by the most powerful woman, the acting Pharaoh of Egypt. And from what we can tell by what happened later, Thutmose III, who would have been his younger adopted brother, so to speak. Actually, Moses was the one that was adopted, but his younger brother, Thutmose III, was in the same household. Here's where it gets interesting. Moses would have been raised by her, given the finest education, given tremendous power, tremendous favor. He would have, if not able to become Pharaoh himself, he would have been one of the most powerful men in the realm. But we don't know exactly what came to mind for him, when his heart or whatever changed. But we do know what happened in Hebrews 11, 24 and 25, where it says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And I think that little phrase, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, really stands out because in many instances in the past, who his mother was just wouldn't even really mattered that much at all. But he refused to be known as her son. And then not long after that, he kills a man and his keep in mind sort of the palace intrigue going on, his younger brother Thutmose III would have given anything for an excuse to get rid of him and Moses knows that he's in big trouble and this is when he flees to Midian where we will pick up his story in our next lesson. Now back to Thutmose III. He would have grown up and become Pharaoh himself while Moses was in Midian. His mother, Hapsetsup, would have died, and this then is the man who Moses would have faced when he came back to Egypt to demand that the people be freed. Thutmose III was extremely powerful, extremely arrogant. He was an extraordinarily strong pharaoh. He conquered many uh, surrounding areas. He fought battle after battle. But it's very interesting how the royal records do not record him going out to battle anymore after 1446 BC. And of course, you compare that to the biblical account and the reason he didn't do any more battles, and there were a lot that could have been fought that could have won, is because according to the biblical account, all of his army was at the bottom of the Red Sea, which is just kind of an interesting little thing there. Another thing too, the Bible records how he was not actually killed in that battle. It says that his army was, and what history tells us is what he did in going into battle, unlike, for example, later on Alexander the Great would lead his armies into battle. For some reason, it was considered that he was uh, watching out for his soldiers or whatever. Whenever they would go into battle, they said, like, into a very dangerous place or a narrow uh, 
valley or whatever, he would stay behind and he would be the last one to make sure that they all got through safely. Well, uh, in this instance, and I think the movie does portray this rather correctly, he was up on the hill watching all of them. They were all destroyed and he was left. Now, one other little interesting historical tidbit before we move on to something that happened with his son. Thutmose, um, he was the pharaoh at that time. And so one would, it would be very valid to ask, since he was the pharaoh, why didn't he die when God did the plague of the firstborn? If he was the pharaoh, if he'd inherited the throne, um, why wasn't he killed? And the answer, of course, is, is because he wasn't the firstborn in the family. Moses was actually the firstborn in that family, and of course he was covered by the blood of the Passover. One last historical tidbit about Thutmose's son, Amenhotep II. Now, he came to power after Thutmose died. This would have been after the Exodus. Now he was not as powerful as his father, although he was a relatively powerful pharaoh, and he did build the army back up. And it's very interesting in reading about him. This was even from secular scholars, and they didn't tie it into anything in the Bible, but I thought this was just fascinating. A number of times they mention how he went out to surrounding countries, and it, it talks about the plunder that he took from those battles. And in battle after battle after battle, what he's going after after is slaves. He's going after slaves. He's going after slaves. He's going after slaves. They mention these different um, th- people that he conquered, and the number that it comes up with is around 100,000 that he finally gathers up that he wanted as slaves to take back to Egypt. And one commentator even said, now, you know, why, why would he want to do that? You know, this is obviously a made-up thing, but this seems to be in the record that he actually did that. Well, if you pair that up with the Bible story, of course, it makes perfectly good sense. That's about the number that they lost when the Israelites left Egypt. And of course, if they wanted to continue their building programs, which were very important to the pharaohs, because you had to have the pyramids, you had to have the tombs, you had to have the temples for your name, for your own immortality, you had to have the slaves to build them. We're going to leave Egypt for now, and let me give you a few concluding thoughts. In the Bible, we find true stories, true history. Now, history can give us confidence. It can add a lot of depth and detail to the Bible stories. But, as always, we must remember that our trust is not in history, but in our God. And one last thing that I want to throw in, this isn't original with me, but I don't know exactly where else I would put it, and I just think it's the neatest thing I want to share with you. And that is, remember in the first of our story, how God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And he gives his name and he says, I am. Now, God started that sentence, and then, of course, in the book of John, Jesus finishes it, where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In our next lesson, we'll talk about what happened when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and how God taught them to worship and to become the people that he wanted them to be. That's all for now.
please check out the show notes and the other materials at www.bible805.com. And please tell your friends about the podcast. They can start in at any time and learn about the Bible and how it is not only verified by history, but how it is the most practical and wonderful guide for our lives now and forever. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prand, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.